It's always a great privilege and a pleasure to minister in this pulpit and in this church, and I bring the greetings of my home church in Christchurch Deeside to you. They will be praying for the conference for this whole week. Now, if you have a copy of the Bible available to you, let me invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke and the 15th chapter, the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel. There are some people who regard this as one of the greatest chapters in the whole Bible, certainly the part of it that we are about to read or to look at concerning the prodigal son has made a tremendous impression upon the minds of millions of people. Well, let's read it together. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance? Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself... He said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, You are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Well, what a marvellous passage to read, and it would take a whole series of sermons to preach on it. And I want to begin by mentioning the background and the context in which this story is given. And that is the increasing unbelief and the resentment of the religious men, the scribes and the Pharisees. And if you have your Bible open at that page, you will notice in verse 2 the contemptuous statement that is made. The Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives or welcomes sinners and eats with them. And they regarded that comment as their strongest denigration of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in reality, it was the greatest commendation of Christ and of the gospel. Now, you will also notice in verse 3 that we are told that in response to that statement, our Lord spoke this parable. So the three stories that we have just read constitute one parable, and they each convey different aspects of spiritual truth. So first of all, you have the story of the lost sheep bleating in distress, Conscious that there is something wrong, but not knowing what it is or how serious it is, and not knowing how to find its way back. And then you have in the next story a lost coin, bearing the image and the superscription of the king, and yet it's failing in the very purpose for which it was minted. It's out of circulation, it's good for nothing. It's fulfilling no purpose. The coin is inert. It can't bring itself back into circulation. It needs to be brought back by another hand. So in each of those two pictures, 
That which was lost is found. And there is the theme of great rejoicing over that which was found. And then as you come to the third story, you have these first two pictures graphically blended together and portrayed in human life. And our Lord is saying, this is what I mean when I speak of a lost sheep that has wandered from the fold and of a lost coin failing in the function for which it was brought into existence. This prodigal son is like that lost sheep. He's like that lost coin. So it's the three stories together that give us the picture of salvation. And it's also true to say that in the third story, there is a comparison between the younger and the older brother, and the contrast between the lostness which each of them experienced. One, like the sheep, was lost in the wilderness. The other, like the coin, was lost in the home. And the last scene of that story, in many ways, could be described as the parable of the elder brother. Because this disagreeable son is the main feature of the parable. He is the one who is exemplifying the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders. The tax collectors and the sinners were notoriously evil. But these religious leaders have maintained an outward appearance of impeccable behavior. They prided themselves on their punctilious observance of all of God's requirements. The tax collectors and sinners had gone into the far country of self-indulgence with no concern whatever for the things of God or for religion. But the scribes and the Pharisees had stayed at home, as it were, And they were diligent workers and diligent supporters in the house of God. It is possible, it is possible to be a professing Christian and to be a practicing atheist. You may be here and you are a professing Christian, but in practice, You are an atheist. That's the picture of these scribes and Pharisees. And our Lord is showing how the younger brother, who had been lost in that far country, came to himself. In other words, he experienced what we know as true repentance. On the other hand, the older brother, who had never left the home, But he had been farther away from his father than his brother was in the far country. And then we need to keep in our mind as we look at this chapter that there are three sons in the story. There is the son who told it. The son of God who was sent by his father into that far country of this world in order that he might go to the place called Calvary and secure salvation for sinners. 
So you realize that there are depths in this passage that we really can't exhaust. So all I want to do is to focus closely on the story of the one who is known as the prodigal son. And whilst it's conveying the truths of the gospel from God's side, it's also showing us the situation from the human standpoint. We see a sinner going his own way, making a mess of his life, and then coming back to the Father. And they are not two separate things. They are two ways of looking at the one and the same thing. Both things are true in any conversion. The man comes, but it's Christ who brings him. Christ brings him, and yet he comes. So I want to consider the story by looking at the three main scenes that you have described for you. First of all, from verse 11 to verse 16, you have the description of the departure from home of this young son. Then secondly, from verse 17 to verse 19, you have his resolution and his return to his father. And then from verse 20 to verse 24, you have the welcome home by the Father. One of the old Scottish preachers gives these three headings. Sick of home, homesick, home. It's as simple as that. Well, let's have a look at the departure from the home. From verse 11 to verse 16, our Lord is describing a simple family situation and scene. Two sons in a farming family. The younger of those sons is growing weary of the home. He is chafing at what he felt were the bonds of home. He wanted to live. He wanted to see the world because it was becoming intolerable for him to live on in that remote, perhaps lonely farm. The world outside was big. The days were going by. He feels that he's missing out on things. And it can be a bitter thing for some people when your heart is young and the world is rich and it's full of visions and it's full of voices and you feel that you're missing out on so many things. And so he thought that everything that he wanted was afar off and that he could appease this restlessness by going over the hills and far away from his home. And it is evident that his heart was away from home long before his body left it. He had wandered away before he set out. So he comes to his father and he asks for his earthly inheritance to be given to him then. It was a heartless, materialistic claiming of his share of the inheritance so that he could leave home and that he could enjoy it. And there was no effort to understand how his father would feel. And there is no evidence that he asked for his father's advice. There is no attempt to know what impact this would have upon his own father. So it is the selfish request of a thoughtless youth claiming his own inheritance to use just as he wants to do. So here is this younger son, totally selfish, reckless in his love of life, doesn't see any reason why he should be denied all the pleasures that he fancied, but he will discover 
that he was stupid as well as heartless because he wanted to leave home in order to find what he thought would be freedom, not realizing that that so-called freedom would bring him into a greater bondage than he had ever known before. He would come into a bondage to his own personality. He would be in bondage to his circumstances. He would be in bondage to the dictates of his fair-weather friends who simply make use of him. So his leaving home would not lead to a life of freedom. It would lead to a life of rapid deterioration and destruction and eventually to a life of humiliation. And the swiftness with which he goes as far away from home as he can gives you an indication of how he was feeling. He is weary of all the restraints and he wants to be away from them. He feels cribbed and cabined and confined. And he doesn't want what he felt were all of these interferences into his life in that family home. So he is a son in name, but he has long since ceased to be a son in heart. And he wants to be away from the whole atmosphere of a place which is totally disagreeable to him. Now, there is no mention of the mother in the story because it is a story about the love of God who is the father. And if it was merely a human story, then there are often parental problems which cause children to become prodigals. Sometimes it is parents who are totally selfish. It is sometimes the way parents live. And sometimes it's the love of the children that keeps the home together. And some parents perhaps never recognize the sadness that they cause their children. And at the same time pride themselves that they've given their children everything. Well, they may have given their children everything, but you can give them everything without giving them the most important things that they need. And that is your love and your security. And there are many children who grow up in homes like that. But there is no such parental defect in this story. So let me take the opportunity at this point to say this. This story has been repeated thousands of times since it was first spoken. And should there be any of you young people here And you're beginning to feel the same way as this young man felt. That you're becoming restless at home. And you want to get out of that home situation. And you want to get away from it. I would ask you to stop and think. And look to the consequences of what you may already be contemplating. And think long and hard about where your desires might take you. Because my Bible tells me that there is a way that seems right to a man. But the end thereof is the way of death. And this young man wanted to be away from home because he wanted to be independent. And he wanted to be independent because essentially he was self-centered. 
He had no scope, he thought, for his energies. Why should he eat his heart out at home when all the attractive voices of the world are calling to him? He's growing in youth and into manhood. He wants to have his day. He wants to experience life at its deepest depths. And so use your God-given sanctified imagination and see him getting up very early one morning, perhaps unable to stand his mother's tears, takes his money with him, creeps down the yard, out into the street, and as far away as he could go, without any thought about the sadness back home. Starts off with a light step, going to the far country. The world has never seemed so magical and so intoxicating as on that first morning when he left that home. He's burst the shackles. He's going to be free. Couldn't express himself at home, but he's going to express himself now, and he's going to do it with a vengeance. Like some of you young people when you go to college or university. And you're away from home. And you are going to have your day. And you are going to have your fling. And you are going to feel that you are free to do as you wish to do. Nobody knows him. So with this sense of anonymity, he can do what he likes. And did you notice in verse 13... In a few graphic touches, our Lord conveys the kind of life that he engaged in. He wasted his possessions with prodigal living. The word prodigal simply means wasteful or extravagant. So with characteristic delicacy, the Lord doesn't go into the details. He leaves that for the elder brother. You see that in verse 30. It's the elder brother who fills in the details of what is happening. So here is this young man. He's left home to find freedom. And in that so-called freedom, he indulges in the carnal desires of the flesh and of the mind. And he discovers that the lights were bright. And the wine was sparkling. And the women were beautiful. But before long he finds that he has become a slave. A sweet slavery for a while, but then the sweetness passes away and the bitterness comes. And thousands of people looking at him at that period in his life, they would have felt that that's a wonderful way to live. You've got money to spend. You can indulge yourself in one round of pleasure-seeking and in carnal indulgence. But bear in mind that there is a time factor in everything that is happening. Things didn't happen immediately. And it's vital for us to recognize that at any given point in time, the story is not finished yet. And looking at him, the story is not finished yet. As far as your life is concerned at this moment, the story is not finished yet. And if you're a young person here this evening and you feel that you are enjoying life and you're away from all the constraints of your religious home with Christians who have family worship and don't like you to go here and don't like you to go there and want you to be in at a certain time, 
And if you feel that by going away you can become independent and you've got free of all of these restrictions, listen to what is happening here. The story of this young man's life at this point is not yet finished. But sin has a blinding power. And the work of Satan is a work of deception. And what happened to this young man can happen to you because he was deluded by Satan. He's being beguiled into believing that this was freedom. And he is living life solely on the basis of his senses. He's deluded into thinking that life with a capital L lies in throwing away all restraint to the winds. And that is the tragedy about sin. It deceives and it blinds, and you'd soon discover that that kind of life costs you everything, and it gives you very, very little in return. And you will notice the regression which begins with riotous joy. Everything that his father had worked for and saved up for, he spent in riotous living. And we all know the kind of riotous living that was. Eating and drinking and fornicating and so on. One round of carnal enjoyments and pleasure seeking. And never forget that there is pleasure in sin. There is plenty of pleasure in sin. That's why we do it. It gives a great deal of pleasure, but it doesn't last. Moses in the Old Testament, we are told that he refused to enjoy the pleasures of sin, which were for a season. Jesus said to the woman of Samaria, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. I'd like to put that over every place of entertainment in this world. You will thirst again. It will never satisfy you. You watch people where you work, study them. Look at them on a Monday morning when they've had their weekend fling. They can't wait for Friday to come so that it can go on again. And so for this young man, things then begin to take a turn for the worst. And the Lord, in that solemn way of his, dims the lights. And he dulls the music. And he takes the sparkle out of the wine. And when the prodigal had money, he had plenty of friends. And with those kind of friends, he soon wasted the money. And it's so very, very true to life. Some people spend a fortune in this kind of way. Sin is one of the most costly and expensive things that there is in this world. There is always a price to pay. It wastes money. It wastes bodies. It wastes souls. It weakens the will. It bruises the conscience. It hardens the heart. And sometimes, as with the story of Samson, it can humiliate and degrade a man and make him a public spectacle. And then you will notice in verse 14, five words that speak volumes. Then there came the day when he had spent all. He's had his last fling and he's left with nothing. And he discovers who his real friends are. No one came to help him. No one came to support him. His wise father, knowing what was going on, didn't interfere. Except in prayer. 
and not one of his so-called companions in pleasure had any heart to give to him when he's in desperate need. And then, says our Lord, there arose a severe famine in that land. Who do you think sent the famine? Here is God's hand at work, seeking and saving that which is lost. And this man is in a terrible plight. And you don't need much imagination to read between the lines. Here he is now begging a farmer to be allowed to feed the pigs, pleading to be allowed to do the very thing that for a Jewish man was abominable to him. So here he is, so hungry that he thinks that he'll eat the pig's will. He's in a terrible mess. And that which was a joy at the outset has very quickly become a burden and a bondage. Are you familiar with these words? Know ye not that to whom you yield your members to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. And the wages of sin is death. Now one thing about this man and this story is that he never intended that it would end up like this. Nobody ever does. I remember years ago in my first pastorate in Liverpool, a young man in the early 60s, and he was the first drug addict I'd ever met. And I took him in for a meal and to help to clothe him and discovered that he was from a lovely home. He'd graduated from the Royal College of Music in London, been a wonderful musician, and it had all ended up in disaster. He never intended that it would end up like that. But it did. And those of us who are older, we have regularly met with people who at the outset of their life never thought that they would end up the way they did. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. Now, what we have been given to us here in pictorial form is our Lord's version of the Garden of Eden story. It's his interpretation of the tragic fall and the tragic plight of man. And so when you look at it in that way, you begin to see how essentially superficial the general understanding of this parable really is. Because so often the stress is upon how this prodigal wasted his substance on this riotous living. The form and the expression of this prodigal's son is incidental to the main issue of the story and what our Lord is saying. It could have been any one of a number of different expressions of sin. You don't have to go into the far country and live it up to be a sinner. You don't have to go into all kinds of degradation to be a sinner. You don't have to be a Harvey Weinstein to be a sinner. You can be a respectable sinner attending church every week 
And if you're in the wrong relationship with God, you are a sinner. And sometimes the most sinister expressions of the human malady don't necessarily belong to the farmyard or to the pigsty or to the gutter. It is simply a person being in a wrong relationship to God. That is the heart and that is the hurt of this young man's story. And the temptation, you remember, to Adam and Eve was to throw off all restraint. Throw off the the shackles where you are dependent upon God. Become independent. You can live your life without him. Go it alone. And that is the essence of all sin. And that's what makes men, women, young people, and children sinners. It is an attitude of rebellion which is self-centered rather than God-centered. That is the essence of sin. That's the heart of this prodigal's condition. But it's also the heart of the older brother's condition. Self-centeredness. The older brother asked for nothing, he desired nothing, he enjoyed nothing. He thought he was a model of dutiful sonship. But he was so absorbed with his own life, he couldn't even enter his father's sorrows and he couldn't enter into his father's joys. He's so taken up with himself. And it may well have been the older brother's insufferable self-righteousness that was part of the reason that the younger son left home. So they're both in a wrong relationship to their father. And keep in your mind that what our Lord is doing, he is showing us that there is a God. And he is revealing God as a father. And it is the father in this story that suffered most of all. Do you remember the exclamation in Genesis chapter 3? When Adam had sinned and then he ran and hid himself among the trees in the garden. And God came seeking and searching for him. And God said, Adam, where are you? I'd love to know how God said that. In a stern, reproachful way. Where are you? What have you done? No. Adam, where are you? What have you done? What have you done? It's the heart of the father. In this story, the younger man's sorrows, well, they were quite a while in coming to him. But even then, his sorrows were very quickly turned into joy. He comes home. He receives forgiveness. And that is comparatively quickly that it's done. On the other hand, the father's heart had been broken from the very day he left home, if not before. The father's heart had remained broken for many days. It bled afresh every day at the thought of this boy. Sin is being away from God. And it is being in a condition that is breaking the very heart of God. So that's the first scene. The next scene is given where the young man makes this resolution and decides to return home. So that's from verse 17 to verse 21. Do you remember in Genesis 3, God said, let us make man in our own image and after our likeness. And the image of God in man means two things. On the one hand, it is that which characterizes man as human, 
as distinct from the rest of creation. Man is a responsible being. He is capable of making responses to God. And that is in no way changed by his sin. Even when he says no instead of yes to God, he is still and he remains a responsible being. And that aspect of the image of God is never lost, even in the tragedy of the fall. On the other hand, the image of God means that man can never be himself by himself. He can only be himself when he's in a right relationship with God and he's in communion with God. And the tragedy of the human situation is that because of our sinful human nature, we all lose our ability to say yes to God. We no longer are free to realize the divine destiny that we could have with God. That's the point of this story. And so this son is involved in a crisis of identity. He's trying to find himself. That's why he went into the far country. But in doing that, the very opposite happened. He lost himself. That's why he needed to come to himself. So that just as we are at the point where this young man, and we're thinking of him as the most loathsome person, just at that point... When we begin to see him as someone who is contemptible and almost despicable, Jesus arrests our thinking. Do you not find it interesting how our Lord relates this? He uses one other single phrase which opens a gleam of light into our minds and it stops us from being overly judgmental. Look at what he says in verse 17. But when he came to himself. There is deep significance in that comment. Because not only is a sinner a stranger to God. He is a stranger to himself. And he needs to come to himself. In modern jargon we would say he needs to hit the wall. He needs to hit the wall. That is his first and greatest need. Because until he comes to himself, he cannot and he will not come to his father. Everything about his renewal and restoration stems from that point, coming to himself. It was then that he began to see clearly. It's then that he begins to think clearly. Not that his situation has changed. His situation is the same. His home hasn't changed. The change is being wrought in him. Now the story doesn't tell us how he came to himself. But the rest of scripture tells us. It is the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And he's coming to himself in a wonderful way. He's gone to the far country to find himself. Imagining that by doing that he would come into his own. And then it's as if a blinding flash of reality and self-revelation comes to him. And he sees himself as he really is. And he begins to see things as they truly were. He strayed a long way from home. He strayed a long way from his true self. So he's now looking at himself in a mirror. And so here's the prodigal up close against the mirror looking at the prodigal. Seeing himself as he really is and how tragically he has become. 
He sees the husks. He sees the swine. He sees the reality of his condition. If his money had lasted long enough, he might have lived in the far country until he died. But the hunger came. And on the back of the hunger, his memory is revived. It's a great thing to fast, you know. It clears your memory. He saw himself, contrasted himself with the man that he was and the man that he is. And now it's a strangely different world from that world that had danced before him before he left home. And he never knew the value of home until he was away from it. I can hear my old mother saying, you never miss the water till the well runs dry. And how true it is. And he knew it then. And he began to see clearly then what he had at home. And his greatest need is revealing everything around him in its truest light. And he begins to see what his selfishness has done to him and where his self-centeredness has led him. And he recognized not only what had happened to him in the immediate past, but he recognized where it was heading in the future. Did you notice in verse 17? He says, I perish. I perish. He's aware not only of his physical condition, but he's aware of his lost spiritual condition. He's going to perish. He's going to go to a lost eternity. And so by the working of the Holy Spirit, all of his deceptions are being swept away. He sees the truth about himself, his own state, his own standing, his condition. And it was this that led his steps back to the Father's house. But don't overlook the famine. Don't overlook the famine. That came when he had spent all that he had. Just happened at that time. That was the Lord's doing. Now notice the two phrases. And when he came to himself, he said, I will arise and go to my father. He came to himself and he came to the father. The coming to oneself is always the precursor of coming to salvation. Unless you honestly face up to the reality of your condition, you will never come to terms with it. And you will notice something else in verse 18. There is a confession of sin being made. He doesn't soften matters by speaking of his faults or of his failings. He doesn't blame other people. And I suppose there were other people who helped him on the downward path. He simply blames himself. I have sinned, he's saying. The guilt is mine. I am ashamed. I am no more worthy. But then you will remember like David of old, he sees his sin as being against the Lord. I have sinned against you, and I've sinned against heaven. He's injured his father, and he's injured himself, and now he recognizes that he has injured God. That is what true penitence is all about. Seeing sin as God sees it. It is the broken spirit that God will not despise. The shorter catechism says this, Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That is what is happening with this young man. Then we are told in verse 20, he arose and he came to his father. How important that is. 
not just seeing yourself as you are, but to do something about it. And the only thing to do is to come back to God. And he didn't wait for somebody to take him home. He knew that he had to come himself. He knew that he had to come as he was. He didn't wait until he could find a charity shop where he could get some clothes and have some new clothes. If he'd done that, he might never have come back. He simply set out to return to his father to put himself entirely in his father's hands. And so the story that begins with give me ends with make me. And he's been taught by life. He's been disciplined by sorrow. He's been scourged by the biting lash of his own foolishness. And now his rebellion has been turned into sweet submission. And previously he was only concerned about himself and what he demanded. But now he is saying, Father, I leave it all to you. You are all wise and I'm foolish. And I've been foolish. Make me whatever you wish. Whatever you wish me to do within your household. That is what true conversion is all about. It is submission to the Lordship of Christ. And then finally you have this very moving scene from verse 20 to 24 of the reception by the Father. It would have been a long road home for that young man. What his thoughts and feelings were, we don't know. It must have been an agony, especially the middle part of a journey like that. And the devil would be there every step of the way. He won't receive you. How would you feel if a son of yours had done that to you? He won't even let you in the front door. What kind of thoughts and emotions were going through his mind? Will his father just look at him and say, well, you're here. I won't throw you out. But you've got to abide by the rules of the house. And if I have any more nonsense, nonsense, you'll be out the back door again. Is that how his father's going to receive him? Maybe he thought he's going to get the worst dressing down of his life. What is he going to say to me? But despite all of his fears, he came. And what he didn't know was that his father had been watching and waiting all the time that he's been away. And his pride and his rebellion are brought home to him all the more as he realizes that his father has been true to him all the time. He couldn't see his father, but his father saw him. There was never a morning, I I suspect, that the father didn't awake and look down that road. And many a time his heart would lift if he saw a figure in the distance, only to be disappointed. But there would be more earnest prayer for that boy that night. Sometimes they say that love is blind, but the love of this father wasn't. He knew what had been going on in the far country. The reports had come back. And as he looked at his son, did he think to himself, what a change in him. 
He didn't go out like that. Look at the weight that he's lost. His skin and bone is just a skeleton. And the father's whole being went out to the boy. And he ran as fast as he could to meet him. Something I am told that an oriental person very rarely does is to run. Can you imagine the servants looking at him as they see the master suddenly going out of the house, rushing down the path, maybe jumping over the hedge, can't get there quick enough to get as fast as he can. And says our Lord, isn't it a wonderful touch? They met a great way off. It was in private. If he'd met the older brother first, he might have turned back. But he meets the father. And in that meeting, he makes his confession. And the father recognizes that it's true repentance. And so he needn't have worried whether the father would have him back. In one moment, in one moment, he discovered everything that he was looking for in the far country when his father embraced him. Look at what it says in verse 10 of the chapter. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Such is the value of one sinner. So I'm not an academic theologian. So I'm not preaching to you a statement of the doctrine of the atonement. I'm trying to preach to you a revelation of the heart and the love of Almighty God. A God who loves as no one else loves. And those of you that know me know I'm a great lover of poetry. So I want to read a poem as I close. It's a man, a Christian man from the Brethren, who puts this story into a similar story about a prodigal daughter. It's a poem which pictures an old church sexton, the gravedigger. I think it's based on those of you that know poetry on Gray's elegy in a country churchyard. And um, he's, the old sexton is going round and he's looking at each gravestone and he's remembering the story about each person. Listen to what he says. I'll have to indulge in your patience. In yon secluded nook beside the wall, where long the pine boughs droop, the shadows fall, where wild the roses bloom a riot red, where pensively the lily bows its head, apart from those supposed as well behaved, the one sweet word forgiven is engraved upon a lowly stone. A babe forlorn who lost her mother soon as she was born. She grew up in her father's tender care, tenfold beloved, yea, and tenfold fair. Upon the dawn of noble womanhood, Ignoble things she never understood until too late. By cultured friends misled, she, panic-stricken from her father, fled. He searched the heedless city day and night until he found her in the pale moonlight, beside the horrid waters waiting near, all full of dark despair and chilling fear. He hushed the pent-up storm that raged within and never once made mention of her sin but spoke of little things that gave her cause to feel how indispensable she was, the little things that memory retains, the little threads that hold like cable chains, 
He stroked her hair, her trembling form caressed, until she sobbed her heart out on his breast and told her piteous tale. With cruel wile the wicked watched, the guileless to beguile. He took her home, he brought the book and read of him who had not where to lay his head, who sought the outcast, who the broken blessed, and spoke forgiveness to the self-confessed, who ministered God's mercy as he passed to die for the ungodly at the last. With patience thus he sought her heart to win, and never once made mention of her sin. Love had its way, with superhuman art it wrote the word forgiven on her heart. Her doubtful hour arrived, with anguish torn the broken spirit sank at break of morn, to love in sovereignty upon the throne. The suffering father bowed his head alone, the people flocked their last respects to pay, the cold self-righteous sternly stayed away. A soft wind filled the wintry air with sighs. A, briv- a vivid rainbow spanned the weeping skies. Glory in tears. The mourners gathered round. I saw a snowdrop trample to the ground. The book was opened and the word was read. They let her down, deep down among the dead. He dropped the cord, the hollow sound I hear, then raised his rugged face without a tear and turned him home to be alone, to see, and nurse her nameless infant on his knee. There good men mourned, and strong men stood and wept, and others from the place in silence crept, by conscience scourged. The voice I used to hear lives like a note of music in my ear, in memory's shrine. I loved those ways so wise, the happy laughter in those honest eyes, so full of eloquence. From pole to pole, that corner is most sacred to my soul. It was a long, long time ago, they say. Tonight, it seems to me, but yesterday. And part of the wonder of salvation is this. It is coming home and finding forgiveness, acceptance, restoration, and belonging. And it is an emotional thing as well. The father fell on his neck and kissed him. And I'm not a Greek scholar, but apparently it is the word that is used for repeatedly kissed him. He kissed him, and he kissed him. The kind of thing when you think your child is lost in the supermarket, and then you find them, and you kiss them, and you kiss them. And he kissed him, kissed him. I can see him going back and sitting down and getting up and going, oh, kissing him again. Smothered him with kisses. He didn't need to know whether he would be accepted. There's no time to speak about the ring and the robe and the fatted calf. He's given the standing and the status. You are my son. You are my son. And he never once made mention of his sin. That's forgiveness. Where do you stand? Are you a professing Christian and a practicing atheist? Are you a young person in a Christian home that's fed up with all the constraints and wanting to get out into the world? Listen to what Jesus is saying and remember that glorious statement. This man receives sinners. Well, thank God he does. There are many of us that he has received. 
And if you will truly face up to yourself and your own condition and see your sin as God sees it and humble yourself and come back to God, he will forgive you. He will pardon. He can restore the years the locust has eaten. And he can give you joy and rejoicing forevermore. Let's bow together in prayer. Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, you have caused this story to be inscripturated in your word that men and women, respectable sinners or flagrant sinners, might know that you are a God who forgives. And we do ask that you will bless your word to all of our hearts. Those of us who know you, we love you. We love you for showing mercy to us and for bringing us to ourselves and for some of us letting us hit the wall in order that we might come back to you. Receive our thanks. And for those who are still outside of Christ, seeking to be independent of you, even this night, give them grace to repent and give them faith to believe. We trust you to do it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen.